Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Our time in the gospel mark is coming to a close. And so now we're looking at the cross of Jesus and his death. And you might say, why are we spending so many weeks? Why are we spending multiple weeks discussing the events surrounding his death on the cross? I mean, Jesus lived this. There was so much to his wonderful life. Why focus so much time, so many weeks on his death? And a big part of the reason that we do that <coughs> is that uh, Mark does that himself in the Gospel of Mark. Mark does that himself. You'll notice that as we've been going through this book verse by verse over the last several months, <coughs> that Mark spends what, what comes up to be about 10 chapters in our English Bibles, 10 chapters unpacking the last three years of Jesus' life. And now he spends six chapters Six chapters, more than half of that amount of time, unpacking a single week. The last week of Jesus' life. Why does he do that? Why does Mark do that? It's because of what happens at the cross. What happens at the cross is what matters most about Jesus' life. It's the point of the whole story. Jesus' life mission, it was not primarily to be a great teacher. It wasn't primarily to be a great example. It wasn't to start a great revolution. His primary purpose was to be a great redeemer, to be a great savior. And that happens at the cross. Happens at the cross. And so we find ourselves this morning looking, zooming into the last few hours at the cross, at the very final moment of Jesus' life, when darkness descends, looms above the whole earth, the sky goes literally black, and Jesus breathes his very last breath. This is the moment in our text this morning that he actually dies. We spent time in the last few weeks talking about just the brutality of his suffering that he endured. But in our text this morning, that other shoe drops. He breathes his last breath and he finally dies. And so I want us to look at, at walk through three points in this text. First, what is the meaning of the darkness that covers the earth? What is the meaning of the darkness? Secondly, what does Jesus' death accomplish? And lastly, we're going to look at how his death actually reverses our own darkness and our own death. So first, let's look at the meaning of the darkness. Read verse 33 with me. Mark 15 verse 33 says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
Now, what you need to know is the way that they told time is that they started counting hours at what we consider 6 a.m., all right? So that means if the sixth hour would be noon. And so if the sixth hour was noon, then that means the ninth hour is 3 p.m. And so from noon to 3 p.m., what we would consider to be like the brightest part of the day becomes the darkest moment in human history, literally and figuratively. Like the sky went completely dark. The gospel of Luke says the sun's light failed. And this is wild. Like we even have early historians, like this guy named Thallus and uh, another guy named Julius uh, Africanus, early historians that lived around this time, they actually document this mysterious phenomenon of nature that had people scratching their heads like, what is going on? I mean, some people read this and they read the historical accounts, not even from the Bible, but like secular historian accounts about this, this around this time, this, this, where the, the world just went black for a few hours. And some people say, you know, maybe this was just a, a massive solar eclipse in the region. But this is the time of the Jewish Passover, which is a full moon season. If you know uh, anything about uh, astronomy, I don't even, is that astronomy? That's probably not astronomy, right? That's like the stars. But if you know anything about the way the moon and all that like works is that you can't have a solar eclipse during a full moon season. Others say maybe, you know, this was like one of those blinding desert windstorms, like the opening scenes of Aladdin, right? Like this blinding windstorm that blocks the whole sun out. But again, we know this is Passover season, which is a wet season in that time. So it couldn't have been that. Why does any of this matter? You need to know that this is a special kind of darkness. This is a set apart kind of darkness. We could say this is a supernatural darkness that descends. And this super, supernatural darkness signifies for us a sharp reality. You see, not many of us know what it's like to be in total darkness, right? Not many of us know what it's like to be in total darkness. My, 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 my four-year-old daughter is afraid of the dark because the shadows sort of spook her out. But true and utter darkness is even darker than that, right? Like in true darkness, you can't even see your own hand if it's right in front of you. You put it right in front of your face and you can't even see your own hand. Like we don't know that kind of darkness because it, there, there, there's always like enough street light or car lights outside or store signs lighting up the night sky to keep things from being completely pitch black. But if you've ever been like awake during like a massive power outage that just goes on for blocks at night, or if you're driving like on the I-15 at night on the, your way to Mammoth where there's no street lights, in instances like that, you sort of get a small taste of what total darkness is like. If you've ever driven on the 15 out to Mammoth at night, you know it can be totally disorienting, right? You're stressed out. You're like looking for the tiny little reflectors. You're hoping that, you know, the, 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 the taillights you see in front of you uh, actually means that the road is straight, right? 
it can be totally disorienting being in total pitch blackness because you can't tell what's around you. You can't tell who's around you. And when you actually like look and dig into the scriptures, what we see is that spiritual darkness has the same effect on us. Spiritual darkness has the same effect on us. It's totally disorienting. And the reason that matters is because this physical darkness that covers the earth, it's a visible, tangible symbol of, it's a signifier of the spiritual darkness that exists in all of us. That's disorienting. You see, the Bible tells us that God, God is the source of all that is true, all that is good, and all that is beautiful. If you want to know what's true, if you want to know what's good and satisfying, if you want to know what real beauty looks like, then look to God. He's the standard of that. He's the source of all that. And so if he's where we get our sense of truth, goodness, and beauty, if he's our source of light, we could say, then we can see everything else because of him and it's how it really is when we start with him. Does that make sense? If God is the source of where we under, how we understand truth, goodness, and beauty, then if, if he's our source of light, then we can see everything else as how it really is. And if he's not, if he's not that source of light for us, then we're totally disoriented. So your life could be centered on, on something like work or something like, like family. And to the point where they become more important to you than God and you center your, your life on those things. Or, or if your life could be centered on what others maybe think about you, like your reputation or your status. Or it could be centered on what you consume. The things that you have, sex, food, alcohol, your life might even be centered on religion. But in a way where your religious works and what you do for God becomes more important to you than God himself. You form more value in how you participate in church life than what the person of Jesus has done for you. You see, in all of these things, if you're not walking in the light, if God isn't your ultimate source of truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're not walking in the light, then you're walking in some form of spiritual darkness. And when you're in spiritual darkness, you might feel like your life is going in, in the right direction, but you're actually disoriented. You're actually lost. You actually don't have any real sense of who you are and why this all is. You see, if anything is more important to you than God, your maker and sustainer, then you'll never find yourself fully satisfied. And that is the meaning of the darkness in this text. The darkness that descends, when the world goes black, when the sun's light fails, that is a physical display of all of our spiritual need. The darkness is a physical outward display of our inward spiritual need. 
the scriptures tell us that God will eventually judge all spiritual darkness in our hearts and in the world. Every wrong thought, every misdirected longing, every sinful action, every sinful desire, if there's anything imperfect or blemished or sinful or darkened in us, the Bible says God's going to deal with it. And in the Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah 13, Jeremiah 4, Amos chapter 8, in all these different places, we're told that when God does deal with the darkness in our hearts, when God does deal with our blemishes and sin, what's going to happen is God's judgment is going to come down and darkness will cover over the land. That's what the Old Testament says. That when God comes down against sin, dark, that, that darkness will cover the land. You see, that's the significance of the darkness that we see at this moment. That darkness, the Old Testament prophets say, that darkness should be coming down over our heads. But now, now at the hour of Jesus' death, that darkness is coming down on him. On him. The maker of all creation, who Colossians 1 tells us holds all creation together, is about to die on a cross in our place. And so it's almost like the sky, the atmosphere itself is confirming the backwardness that this innocent man, this innocent God-man on the cross is experiencing God's judgment against sin. So backwards, so scandalous, that the sun just gives up for a few hours. The sky goes black at the moment of Jesus' death. You see, all of us were headed towards total darkness and destruction, but at the cross of Jesus, darkness is headed for Jesus. All of us were headed towards total darkness and destruction. Darkness was coming for us. But at the cross, darkness is now headed for Jesus. He died the death that we should have died so that we could be saved from his judgment and now free to live in the light of God's glory and grace and presence. That is the meaning of the darkness. So now, if that's the meaning of his darkness at his death, Let's talk about what does his death accomplish. Point number two, what his death accomplished. Read verse four with me. It says at the ninth hour at 3 p.m. when it's still dark, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani which is his native tongue and means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it was common for there to be cries of pain and anguish and despair at a crucifixion like this. But this cry, what Jesus cried, reveals to us that there's something so much more than just pain and suffering going on here. There is something so much more than mocking and betrayal and physical pain. In this moment, the Son of God is forsaken by God the Father. He's forsaken. He's, we could say, abandoned. 
at the cross. You see, this is the moment. This is the moment that Jesus dreaded. If you remember when we were, like a few weeks ago, when we were talking about his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying and he saw, he envisioned a moment where the text tells us that, that he, would, he would drink from the cup of God's wrath. And when he prayed in the garden, he, if you remember, he, he was in his humanity, he said, Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way that we could save these sinners? Is there any other way that we could save these people other than having to drink from the cup of your wrath? A metaphor which says that Jesus was about to, to, that the father was about to let his son have it. Jesus was about to absorb the wrath of God in our place. And Jesus is, is envisioning this. He sees a picture of this and he says, Father, is there any other way for me to do this? This moment is the moment that he was thinking about in that garden. This moment is what crushed his heart when he prayed that. The moment where he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? We've seen in the last few weeks how Jesus sort of absorbed the most brutal of physical abuses. Beatings at the hands of soldiers and executioners. A crown of thorns pressed into his scalp. His back was scourged and flogged till his flesh is hanging off in places reduced to just like this, this bloody piece of meat beaten after that with a rod over and over and over and over. And as brutal and horrific, it must've been, been to feel the lash of an executioner's flag rub on your back. It is something else entirely to feel the lash of God's wrath in your soul. That's why he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? To understand what his death is accomplishing, we need to zoom in into that cry. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the most painful aspect of his suffering. When he was bearing the weight of our sin, God's unhinged fury against our sin, he was absorbing and he bore it alone. He's bearing it alone, forsaken by the Father, it says. And in that moment, what happened is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, turns, turns his back on God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. And in that moment, the God who became man, Jesus Christ absorbed the darkness and the judgment of God. He atoned for the sins of men. Donald MacLeod, this Scottish theologian, he says, he speaks of this moment and he says, Jesus has reached at this second, he's reached the lowest point in his humiliation. And the most awful moment of his agony. The physical pain was no worse than before, perhaps even less, but his soul 
is in torment. His soul is in torment. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to know what the death of Jesus accomplished? He was forsaken. He was forsaken by the Father so that we could be forgiven by the Father. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we could be forgiven by the Father. This is the only time that Jesus does not refer to God as Father. The only time. Every other time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is talking about God, is talking to God in prayer, he addresses him as Father. This is the only time he doesn't refer to God as Father. Why is that? It's because his relationship with God the Father at this moment, his relationship with God at this moment is not as Father-Son, but as judge, defendant. In this one moment, standing in our place, Jesus receives, <coughs> he receives judgment from God and not intimacy. You see, that is what the death of Jesus accomplished. Something legal happened <coughs> in this moment. He stood as one guilty, as our substitute. Something spiritual happened in that moment. The king of light absorbed the kingdom of darkness. Something eternal happened in that moment. Jesus traded places with us. He became our substitute, and so our sin was imputed to him. It was put on. It was granted to him. He became cursed. For a moment, he became damned by God the Father. In this moment. I want you to, to, to I want you to notice just the, the the intense and increasing loneliness and isolation that Jesus experiences. I want you to notice how the loneliness and isolation of Christ just piles on in these last hours. The huge crowds that followed him have now abandoned him. Judas, one of his twelve in the inner circle, one of his twelve disciples, betrayed him. The 11 left eventually becomes one, Peter. And eventually that one, that Peter eventually abandons him too. And here, in this moment, in this moment, even the father turns his face away. The executioners are beating him. The people are mocking him as they walk on by. And even the father turns his face away. Jesus is saying, Jesus, Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, is his way of saying, God, you? You? Like, I, I could take everyone else leaving, but you? That is what makes the cross of Jesus unique to any other cross. That's what makes the agony of Jesus unique to any other kind of agony. That's what makes the death of Jesus unique to any other death. Many have been crucified. 
But there was only one who endured this type of pain. There was only one who was innocent of having to deserve this kind of pain, innocent of this kind of grief, innocent to have to go through this type of suffering of this nature. This moment was the most agonizing moment of Jesus on the cross. More than having the flesh ripped out of his back by tiny pieces of bone and metal, this moment was the most agonizing. To bear the weight of sin and God's wrath. To be forsaken by the Father. And for what? For what? Why did Jesus do this? For you. For you. For me. To bear the weight of our darkness. To bear the weight of our sin. Jesus drank from the cup of God's judgment so that we would never have to taste a single drop. All our sins. The sins of all his people. Bore by him. And he absorbed God's judgment. I was reading in a, in a commentary in the Gospel of Matthew on uh, 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 it's a parallel text for the death of Jesus. And there's a there's a commentator named Douglas O'Donnell, uh, pastor and theologian, and 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 he writes out uh, just uh, this list of of sins. He says like, imagine what it must have been like. For Jesus to bear the weight of all the sins of his people. To bear the sins of the church. And he has this list. The list is too long for me to have it up on the screen for you. So I want you to to, to listen to how O'Donnell describes this. He says, Jesus, for all the sins of his people. For the sins of abortion, adultery, ungodly anxiety, arrogance, backbiting, bearing false witness, bitterness, blasphemy, boasting, bribery, complaining, coveting, contention, coarse joking, deceit, defrauding others, despising the poor dishonoring the government, discarding, disregarding the Lord's people on the Lord's day, disrespecting your parents and elders, envy, evil thoughts, fornication, fortune-telling, fraud, gambling, giving grudgingly or not giving at all, gluttony, gossip, greed, harsh words, hating your brother, holding a grudge, idleness, idolatry, immodesty, losing your temper, lust, lying, malice, murder, prayerlessness, racism, rage, rape, resisting the Holy Spirit, returning insult for insult, rioting, scoffing, selfish ambition, showing favoritism, slander, sloth, speaking idle words, stealing, unlawful divorce, violence, witchcraft, loving the world, loving yourself, not loving your neighbor or your enemy or your fellow Christian or God, 
just to name a few six. In all ways that we fall short of God's perfect glory for all those sins and more. Just imagine, O'Donnell says, what the weight of the sins of the world must have felt like. Imagine what it felt like for he, the only human who could say he, he knew no sin. What must it have felt like for he who knew no sin to be made sin? To bear the sins of his people. Have his father at that moment, under that crushing weight, have his father turn his face away. And not just turn his face away, but lay in that father's judgment. Yet, he did it. He did it. He, he drank from that cup. For sinners like you and me, for us, he drank from the bitter cup. And he drained the cup dry. He left not a single drop for us to drink. Why? Why did he stay on the cross? This is the God-man. He could have found a way to get removed from the cross. Why did he stay on the cross? Why was he willing to be forsaken so we could be forgiven? He experienced hellish torment of damnation, the hellish torment of damnation so that we could experience the heavenly delight of being with God. Now, how does that happen? Finally, how does this reverse our own darkness and death? How does the death of Jesus reverse our own death? How does him absorbing that darkness reverse our own darkness? Read in verse 35 with me. It says, some of the bystanders hearing this said, behold, He's calling Elijah. Now, quick note here. The reason he says that is because there was a superstitious belief at the time that the prophet Elijah could be summoned at any moment to rescue an innocent person. Not unlike how some religious traditions today will like pray to like a special saint if you want help in a certain area, right? And so when he said, Eloi, Eloi, they, they mishear him and they think he's calling for Elijah. And so that's why it says some of the bystanders said, look, he's calling Elijah. And then verse 36, it says, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, hey, let's, let's, let's see if we can keep him alive longer. Let's see if whether Elijah will actually come take him down from this cross. In verse 37, it says, Jesus at that moment, at that moment, Jesus uttered a loud cry. And breathed his last. The moment Jesus dies 
This is the moment Jesus dies. And they're mocking him to the very end. Relentless. Verse 38 says, at that moment when he breathed his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? The curtain uh, in the temple was torn in two. This, this is important. This is fascinating. You see, the, temp, the temple curtain, which was actually pretty thick, it was almost like a wall. So this isn't like some thin fabric. This is like a wall of a fabric. This thick temple curtain was supernaturally torn in two, which confirms that Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. You see, the temple was their one place of worship. For the Jews alive at the time, remember, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and the temple was the one place that they worshipped. It was the only place that they could make sacrifices to God, meet with him in his presence. And so the Old Testament tells us that like, there's so many books that detail like all the details about how the temple was uh, supposed to look like. So many of them in the Old Testament. More, 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 more books in the Old Testament have to do with the temple than, than, than we actually have in the New Testament that have to do with Jesus. You see, this is important. Because the, the, temple, the curtain in the temple signified the separation that existed between God and mankind. In the temple, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. It's where the symbolic presence of God dwelled. And it's where the little, literal presence of God was, was, was sort of present, was magnified, was in that Holy of Holies. And so there was this temple that they put up to separate this, this special Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And you weren't allowed in the Holy of Holies. Because if you read the Old Testament, what you know is that when people come face to face with God's glory, when they come face to face with His holy light, it floors them. In many instances, it kills them. Because God is so perfect and we're so blemished. And so they had this thick curtain to remind people, you're not allowed in the Holy of Holies. Unless you were specifically assigned by God as the high priest. If you were the high priest, like if you were not the high priest and you went back there and you touched the Ark of the Covenant, the scriptures say you would die. So this, this Holy of Holies, this, this curtain in the temple, I mean, this is a scary, awesome place. The high priest is this guy who would go through this crazy cleansing process that took days. This crazy ritual cleansing process, right? I mean, this isn't like 12 hours like that you do for like a, like a diet cleanse, right? Like this is like intense cleanse, right? He had, to, he had to look a certain way. He had to dress a certain way. He had to bathe a certain way. And it took days for the high priest to prepare to go into the Holy of Holies. And he would only go in once a year on a single day, Yom Kippur, to make a sacrifice at the Holy of Holies on behalf of God's people. 
So this, the, the high priest was the holiest dude from the holiest people who would only come in on the holiest day. He had one chance to go in and offer a blood atonement for the people's sins. And if he did anything wrong, if there was any blemish in his ritual cleansing, if he did anything wrong, then, 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 then what, what would happen is the, 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 the scriptures warn that, that the high priest would just die on the spot in the Holy of Holies. So everyone, like on Yom Kippur, when the high priest goes in, like everyone's on the edge of their seat. They're all scared to death on whether this guy would survive or not. In fact, they tie a rope to him uh, just in case he died so that if he died, they could pull him back out. Because, I mean, if he died in there, it's like you're not going to go in because then, like, you'll die. And then there's just be a pile of bodies at the end of the day. And so they tie a rope to him just in case he died. And then they pull him out. Why does this matter? Why is this important? You see, you need to understand just the scary, awesome nature of the Holy of Holies in the temple. You need to understand that because this is how the Old Testament, which is the majority of our, our Bibles, the Old Testament on this side, this is how in the temple, what's happening at the cross, this is how the Old Testament actually jives with the new. The whole system with the temple and the sacrifices and the high priest, all of that for all these pages in the Old Testament, all of that was the way that God's people could meet with him was through this mediator, through this high priest. There was no other way for God's people to encounter and interact with the presence of God. No other way. Until, until the minute, the second, the very moment Jesus died on the cross, took his last breath. And what happens? The curtain is mysteriously, supernaturally, divinely torn in two from top to bottom. The old order, the old covenant is done for, and the new order is here. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant is here. It's inaugurated. This is God making a loud statement. When the curtain tears, God is making a loud statement saying, you can now have direct access to me because of what Jesus did on the cross. God is now saying, now anyone can come to my presence. Now my presence has come to you in the person of Jesus through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. You see, this, the curtain tearing, is the game changer. You, you can't scoot over it when you're reading this. This is the game changer. The center of Christianity at this moment is no longer a place but a person named Jesus. We don't need to make a pilgrimage or a trip to some sacred place because Jesus through the Spirit will meet us now in any place. And Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, just to make sure we understand what a game changer this is, 
shows us the impact that the death of Jesus made on a man who was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. It says in verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. Truly, this man is the son of God. See, this is the climax of the book of Mark. If you remember, when we started the gospel of Mark, in the first chapter, Mark tells us right up front, this is the story of Jesus, the Son of God. He says that right on the front end. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But from that moment on, from Mark Chapter 1, verse 1, from that moment on, not a single person up to this point has actually figured that out. And the entire gospel of Mark, even the disciples, they get that he's the Messiah. They get that he's the Christ. They get that he's bringing in, ushering a new kingdom, but they don't quite understand that this is actually the Son of God. They're not going to get that until later, until after the resurrection. No one. After Mark 1, verse 1, no one gets it until, until this guy in verse 39. Can you imagine being this guy? When he finally comes to the realization of who Jesus is and just goes, this man really was the son of God. Imagine him going home after work. Dave, you'll never guess what I did today. Luke says that he kept praising Jesus after this moment. I mean, what a transformation. This is the Roman officer who was right there. It says his face was right there. This is the Roman officer that was in charge of Jesus' execution. He's standing right at the foot of Jesus' cross when the sky goes black. He's there when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's there when Jesus takes his last breath. This executioner was familiar with crucifixions. But he knew that this crucifixion was different. This cross was different. This death was different. This man was different. For the first time, Jesus is confessed by someone as God's son. And he happens to be not one of his disciples, not one of the Jews in the crowd, but a total outsider. This is Mark's way of showing what it means for the curtain to rip. Mark's saying, you don't have to be holy. You don't have to be Jewish. All you need is faith in Jesus. All you need is faith in his death and what it accomplished. All you need is faith alone in Christ alone. This man, this centurion is spiritually dark. He doesn't know God's law. 
He's an oppressor of God's people. He's a murderer of many people and of the Messiah. Yet he sees at this moment where Jesus cried on the cross. He has this epiphany of who Jesus is. And he says, this is the son of God. Comes one of the first Christians. I was reading this uh, account a few weeks ago uh, in this missions journal. And there's a, there's a story like from like, it was like a couple hundred years ago. Uh, this, this British missionary goes to this like unreached people group in, in Africa. And he's doing the best that he can to, to share the gospel to the elders of this, this tribe. And they're scoffing at him and they're spitting at him and they're laughing at him. And, and he has a, knows a little bit of their language, but he's mostly using these illustrations he's of, of, of Jesus' life and his death. And one of the guys who's like scoffing at him and making fun of this, this missionary throughout the presentation at the moment that he, this, this missionary starts explaining the, what happened to Jesus on the cross is this, this one, uh, this one, one of the uh, leaders, the tribal leaders, his face starts to, to change. His, his heart starts to soften. And when the page turns, there's a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross in our place. We're sinners like you and me and like, like him, like this tribal leader. The record states that, that this tribal leader stood up from the ground with tears in his eyes and said, No, no, son of God, not you. Put me there. Put me. He's just looking at a picture. And he says, no, son of God, not you, but me. By seeing what Jesus did on the cross, that's what softened his heart. That's what invaded his own darkness. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you say you're not, you're not quite a Christian yet. Let this passage be good news that the death of Jesus can, can remove your spiritual darkness and your spiritual blindness too. The death of Jesus, if you let it, can make spiritually blind men see. You want to know what pierced the centurion's spiritual darkness? How he started to see in the light? Is because he heard Jesus' cry. When Mark says the centurion heard his cry, it's like Mark is inviting us to press into that cry, into Jesus' words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to see the amazing grace in that cry. To see the same amazing grace that the centurion saw and felt and received. If you see Jesus giving up the giving himself up up the immeasurable love of the Father, if you see Jesus giving up the measurable love of the Father out of immeasurable love for you, that will ruin your self-righteousness. It will melt the darkness and give you new sight. 
when Jesus steps into the darkness, he steps into our darkness, he destroys it so that we can walk in the light. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, let the cross of Jesus, let the account of his death give you deep encouragement in your own suffering. Now, how many of us need encouragement in our own suffering? When you look at the cross of Jesus in your suffering, you're reminded that Jesus hasn't abandoned you. I don't know whatever it is, like whatever hard stuff that you might be going through this week, but it, it can't be because God is disappointed in you. It can't be because God doesn't love you. This text shows us Jesus was forsaken so that you would never have to be. He took the forsakenness for you. Romans 8, 32 says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if the father was willing to let his son have it on our behalf, how could you, how could you ever have any doubt that God is with you? How could you have any doubt that God is for you when you gaze at the cross? Darkness fell into the soul of Jesus so that light could invade yours. You see, the cross of Jesus is everything to us. It's everything to the Christian. It's everything to the church. His death is everything. It brings us life that takes from us from the darkness and it brings us into his marvelous light. It's everything for us. It's everything for Christians throughout the ages, and it's everything for King's Cross Church. This is the message of the church throughout the ages. and It continues to be our message today. I want to close with a quote from our early church father, John Chrysostom. He says, the cross... The cross destroyed the enmity of God toward man. The cross brought about the reconciliation. The cross made the earth heaven. It associated men with angels. It pulled down the citadel of death. It unstrung the force of the devil. It extinguished the power of sin. It delivered the world from error. It brought back the truth, expelled the demons, destroyed the temples, overturned the altars, suppressed the sacrificial offering, implanted virtue, and founded the churches. Why does the church exist? Because Jesus died and rose. Why does King's Cross exist? Because Jesus died and rose. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.